What does Christianity have to offer? In particular, what does Christianity have to offer the person who is burdened by guilt? It's a crucial question, I think, because in the end we all feel guilty. Guilt, of course, assumes a courtroom, doesn't it? It assumes a judgment. Guilty! Oh gosh, that was louder than I meant. Um, didn't sound that loud when I practised it at home, I promise. It, it, it assumes that there is a right and a wrong, doesn't it? It assumes we've fallen on the wrong side. You're all awake now, aren't you? We are guilty. And we deserve a punishment. What does Christianity have to offer those who are burdened by guilt? And indeed, what does Christianity offer to those who aren't burdened because we've buried our guilt so deep inside us that we don't feel anything? Some of us, I guess, will be sensitive souls, uh, gentle and soft-hearted, who feel very keenly the prick of conscience every time we so much as take a step out of line. Others of us would prefer to bury the truth We might briefly hear the the voice of conscience in our ears saying, you shouldn't have done that. And we turn to our conscience and say, get back in the cellar where I left you and don't you dare talk about this again. We do, don't we? Some of us will be worn down by the same old battles, the same sins that surface again and again. And others of us, when we look in the rearview mirror of our lives, we see one thing, one event one thing we did or was done to us that looms and consumes everything else and just occupies our vision. I guess it can be true for the Christian. Some of us might be sitting here thinking, after the week I've had, maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Others of us might be looking into Christian things and saying, if you only knew, Ash, if you only knew what I'd said and done and thought, you'd know that God would have nothing to do with me. All of us, from time to time, feel battered by guilt. Perhaps even most of the time, if we're that way inclined. It's Paul's experience, if you've read Romans chapter 7, we we won't have time to to look at every verse uh, before this chapter. But that's Paul's experience. In 1 Timothy 1, he says, I am the chief of sinners, the worst person who has lived. And here is that same Paul saying, here's some wise counsel. Here's something to do with your guilt. For he gives us the glory of the gospel. Only verse 1, and he's already read it for us. And as soon as he's read it as well, let me read again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what I want to do this afternoon is to unpack the meaning of that one verse. Um, The three verses that follow are its explanation. uh, Because, verse 2 and onwards. And we will dip into other parts of the letter as we go because we are starting uh, this series halfway through the book. So we probably do need to just dip in a little bit to where we've been. Uh, That therefore at the beginning of verse 1 does rather point us back to the previous seven uh, chapters. But the question we want to ask this passage, because I think it's the question it answers to some extent, is what does Christianity offer to us when we feel guilty? And the answer is right there, isn't it? No condemnation so let's start with our first point Uh, thinking about that word condemnation Uh, condemnation for all because of sin imagine the scene the judge sits on their throne I think it is pretty much a throne in courtrooms high up above everybody else certainly high up above the dock uh, gavel in hand at least if you've watched TV in the movies I don't think they do that in real life but sitting there with the gavel 
about to pronounce judgment. The evidence has been heard and weighed, and it's pretty conclusive. Uh, You are condemned, and you will be punished. That word condemnation has hung over the whole letter so far. Back in chapters 1 to 3, Paul has gone to great pains to say, every single person who has ever lived is guilty before God. Every one of us. Uh, Chapter 3 then tells us about Jesus and what he's done for us. Chapter 4 tells us about the faith that allows us to take that for ourselves. Chapter 5, which is the parallel to chapter 8 in lots of ways, talks about Adam, the first sinner. Through him sin came into the world and with it came condemnation. Condemnation of sin and the judgment. And if you know your Bible at all, if you've ever been around church, you'll know these words from chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. The condemnation for sin and then the judgment, death. A condemnation of sin hangs over the whole book so far. If we're going to understand uh, this passage, we're going to need to just unpack a couple of ideas as we go. And the main one is this. What is sin? What is this sin that we are condemned for? And I think we get a strong hint of it in chapter 8, verse 4. If you look down at it with me, please. If you've got your Bibles open, page 1134. Uh, The righteous requirements of the law. That phrase ought to scare us, I think. God is our maker, chapter 1. He owns us. He has the right to tell us how to live in his world, to please him and to enjoy it best. He's made that known to us in the scriptures primarily and in the law of the Old Testament. And the righteous requirement of the law, at least in part, is this, that we love God perfectly and love our neighbour as ourselves. We obey God in everything. And the truth is we haven't done that, as Paul goes on to say in in chapters 1 to 3. And the truth be told, our own consciences bear witness to that, don't they? If you let them out of the cellar long enough to listen to them. Uh, Paul says in 7 verse 12, The law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. But we're not. God's word to us about how we should live in his world is great. It's a model of how life ought to work, but we don't live by it. In chapter 1 terms, we have suppressed the truth about God. We've taken it and killed it and buried it under the patio in the garden. We don't want anything to do with the truth about God. We sought to be our own kings, sought our own rulers. And this is the heart of it. Sin is that we should love God with everything that we are, but our love has turned away and turned in on itself to ourselves, to to paraphrase Augustine. Ever since Adam and Eve, we have turned away from God and loved ourselves. And if we're honest, if we let our consciences tell us, we know it's true, don't we? In fact, God gave the law, verse 3, to restrain sin in sinful people. People were already sinful, Adam and Eve were sinful, and God gave the law, but the law was unable to stop us from sinning. The law is, you see, imposed from the outside, and we are sinful on the inside, in the core of our being. Let's just read uh, verse 3 there. Uh, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. The law was powerless because of our sinful nature. See, the law is good. We've said that. The law is really good. It offers us the best way to live. And in our sinful natures, we're completely incapable of obeying it. And if you've been doing uh, the Bible overview in KG, I guess by this point in the year, you're pretty tired of 
the constant repetition of God's people just could not obey him, could not love him. And that is what we are like in our nature. Let me illustrate this if I can. Uh, our old car had a tracking problem. You know what tracking is? It's, you, you put the car facing forwards and you, you take your hand off the wheel and just press the accelerator. And if the car's tracking right, the car will keep going straight forward. Ours didn't. Ours turned slightly to the right, just imperceptibly to start with. But pretty soon you were crashing into the cars around you. It's not a good thing. We didn't drive with our hands off the wheel, by and large. Uh, but the point was that to, to drive the car properly, you were always fighting to right it. Always fighting to keep it in a straight line, ever so slightly. The tracking of our hearts is broken. We are inclined to veer off to the side. And the law of God functioned a bit like uh, raised curbs at the side of the road and the lines that run down the middle to say, this is the way you should go. This is the way you don't go. Don't, don't drive up here, you'll hit someone's house. Don't do that. Stay down in, down this lane. Uh, drive carefully. All sorts of things imposed from the outside. And in the car is a heart that says, I don't care what you think. I'm going to veer off sideways. Now, the law was imposed from the outside and could not deal with our sinful natures on the inside. And that, that propensity for sin is what leads to judgment. And look at verse 2. We're going back up the passage, as you might have noticed. Uh, Through Christ, the law of, uh, of the spirit of life is me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. Now here I don't think Paul is using law to mean the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. He's using it in, in the sense of a power, a rule, the authority, the one who's in charge of us. And I think he's saying, in our natural selves, we are ruled by sin. That is the realm in which we live. It governs over us. We have no power apart from it. And so we're also under the power of death because that's the judgment on sin. We live by sin and we die because we live by sin. From Genesis 2.17 onwards where God said, if you do this thing, you will die. That has been the judgment for every sin since. So let's be clear. Every person from Adam onwards has lived their life in the realm of sin. Under the shadow of the final declaration, you are guilty, you are condemned, and you must die. And the law of God, brilliant though it is, imposed from the outside, can do nothing to make us righteous. We cannot save ourselves because we cannot change our nature. We have nothing to bring to God and we owe him everything. And such is the background to this wonderful chapter, Romans 8. For you see, Paul is saying, though you did deserve that, and it is what we deserve, there is now no condemnation for everyone who is in Christ Jesus. Let's just unpack that idea for a, little, for a moment, shall we? Uh, our second point, condemnation of sin for all in Christ, which I appreciate is a bit of a convoluted title. It'll try mirror it up with the one before um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's language that comes straight out of verse 3 I said right at the beginning that uh, the first verse is our headline and the next three verses unpack it and the heart of that unpacking uh, it grammatically is the end of verse 3 and so he that is God condemns sin in the sinful nature in sinful man See, no longer is it that man sins and man is condemned. It is sin itself that is condemned. And to understand what he means by that, we need to look at what Jesus has done under this point 
and then what the Spirit is doing, how, how, how Jesus' work is applied to us in our final point. So let's start with verse 2, shall we? Look down at it with me, please. Because through Christ Jesus set me free from the law of sin and death. I appreciate I skipped over a bit there. We'll come back to that, don't worry. Uh, through Christ Jesus he has set me free from the law of sin and death. I see the power of sin to rule over me and the power of sin to then condemn me to death because of my rebellion has been broken. Set free. See, the first part of the reason is through Christ Jesus. Something that Jesus has done has set me free. Now, what is that? For what we were powerless, what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. God was doing something. What the law was unable to do, that is, make us righteous and make us fit to stand before a holy God. God himself has done through Jesus. As the, the law was on the outside, like lines on the road and, and raised curbs, but God has done something to fix what's inside the car. God did something. He sent Jesus through Christ Jesus. And what did he do? God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That word likeness, I guess, could trip us up. It doesn't mean that Jesus came looking like a person but wasn't really okay rather it means that he was a real person every bit as human as you and I are but his flesh was not a sinful flesh remember Adam Adam and Eve before they fell in Genesis chapter 3 were perfect human beings you can be a human being without being sinful it's it's almost taken as as read isn't it that because we're all sinful therefore you have to be sinful to be a person Jesus just like Adam before him, was a perfect human being without a sinful nature. He was fully human, but his human body, his human self, only looked like sinful flesh. That is, Jesus was fully human and fully obedient to God. He fulfilled, in the terms of verse 4, the righteous requirements of the law. He fulfilled, uh, he fulfilled them as a perfect human being. But more than that, Jesus, by becoming fully human, was able to stand in our place. And I take it this is fundamental. It's the centre of the Christian faith, if you don't know it, and if you do, it's good to be reminded, isn't it? And there are two things that this passage highlights for us of the work of Jesus that I think it's worth really grasping hold of. They are two gifts of God's wonderful and abundant grace. We're told that God did what we couldn't do. God did it by sending Jesus. God, Jesus did it by obeying the Father perfectly. Notice then that we didn't do it. What we're about to hear is not our work, but we do benefit from it. Two points then. The first is this, sacrifice for sin. <coughs> Look again. At middle of verse 3. In the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Here's the language of sacrifice. And again, if you've been in the Bible overview with us, many of us have been, you'll know it comes right out of Leviticus. It's the Old Testament picture of substitute, an animal. An animal was chosen to stand in the place of the people. The people deserve to die. 
And God uh, declared that if you chose the, the, the right animal and uh, symbolically put your sin on that animal, that animal could die in your place. Uh, over and over again we saw that. But of course if you've read on into Hebrews, and we will do that in the overview next term, uh, we're told that the blood of bulls and goats cannot really take away sin because they're just bulls and goats. And people are, are worth so much more than bulls and goats. The sin of people can't be taken away by uh, an animal but, but Jesus can. Jesus can. He's, he's a person who is utterly perfect. He has no sin of his own to die for. The curse, the condemnation is not on him. But he can stand in our place. And by taking on himself the death that we deserve, he also takes away our condemnation. I take it that's what Paul means when he says that Jesus condemned sin. It means he robbed it of power. The thing about sin is you commit sin and then the voice whispered in your head, you deserve to die for that. But if the death is already taken, the power of sin to condemn us is gone. The judgment is taken. But more than that, he makes us righteous. Notice verse 4, the consequence of Jesus standing in our place and dying for sin in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So as Jesus takes our sin upon the cross, he also gives us his perfectly righteous life. So in 3 verse 6, uh, just flick back with me, would you, just a couple of pages, 3 verse 26 rather, uh, forgive me. As a sort of sum, a sum at the end of this, the wonderful verses 21 to 26, he says, God did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time. Okay. So as to be just because he condemns sin, he punished sin in the Lord Jesus, and the one who justifies, that means make righteous, those who have faith in Christ, in the Lord Jesus. And God is both just in punishing sin and just in making us righteous in his own eyes. Jesus gives us his righteousness, his perfect life, so that, if you flick over a page, 5 verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified, that is, made righteous by faith, we have peace with God. The beginning of this whole section, 5 to 8, is a declaration that because you trust in Jesus, your condemnation is taken away, and you are seen by God to be perfect in his sight. And 5 verse 1 parallels perfectly with, uh, with 8 verse 1, doesn't it? Therefore there is now no condemnation, because you're justified, if you're in Christ Jesus. God demands that we be perfect as he is perfect. We cannot do it because of our sin, and we deserve to be punished by death. But Jesus steps into our shoes, takes our death, and makes us righteous in order that we might have peace with God. In order that we might experience no condemnation. So far then we've looked at the work of Jesus in, in summary, uh, not in detail. But the weight of this chapter, as Andy's already said, uh, certainly in the first half of this chapter, as we'll see over the next three or four weeks, is the work of the Spirit. Uh, taking, uh, taking that sort of work of Jesus and moving the story on for us as he applies the work of Jesus to our lives. You might say, if you like, Jesus died for his people. 
that he's given his righteousness to his people. But the question I suppose is, how do those benefits come to me? How do I become one of Jesus' people who benefits from those things? And the answer is simply, by the Spirit. Or to put the question another way, look down at verse 4. In order the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Who is the us, Paul? Who is the us? Well, and our passage gives us two parallel answers, I think. In verse 4, he goes on to say, doesn't he? Us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Paul says, Jesus' death is effective for those people who live by the Spirit. On the other hand, verse 1, which is our headline verse, puts it slightly differently, doesn't it? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who is Jesus effective for? Those who are in him. Do we, do we have two conflicting ways into the, the works of Jesus there? Um, or do they get brought together? And the answer, I think, is very, very clear in verse 2. Because through, Jesus, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. It's as if over here is the realm of Adam's rule. Okay, governed by sin and leading everybody to death. Okay, but now we've been transferred through Jesus' death on the cross to a new realm, the realm where Jesus is king and a new power, not sin, governs us. And verse 2 the law of the spirit of life, the rule of the spirit of life. It's the same idea, not the rule of sin and death, but the rule of the spirit of life governs us. Okay, that's a little bit quicker. Let's, let's slow down and go back over that again uh, as the rest of the passage unpacks it for us. Uh, two things the Spirit does that our passage highlights that bring us into the fullness of experiencing what Jesus has done for us. And the first is this. He unites us to Jesus. See, Jesus died on the cross for all those who are in him. Back in 5 verse 1, as I read already, we are in him by faith. The big burden of chapter 4, the end of chapter 3, is that by faith God's people are always been saved. By trusting in the work of Jesus, when you look at Jesus dying on the cross, it, it beckons to you, trust him. He's died for his people. Will you trust him? Will you let him die for you? And as you put your trust in Jesus, he becomes your personal saviour. And we become united to him. But the intriguing thing here in chapter 8 is that the emphasis isn't on the through Christ Jesus bit. Now, the focus is on the rule of the spirit of life. Yes, Jesus has died for his people. We've learned about that for the last seven chapters. He's done something monumentally wonderful. I do encourage you to go back and read Romans 1 to 7 if you have time. But it is the spirit, the rule of the spirit of life, who breaks the power of sin over us. Who gives us eyes to see Jesus truly. The faith to love him. More than that. It is the spirit who, of Jesus who lives in us and in Christ. We're bound together with Jesus, uh, not just by the realm that we're in, but actually by our location. When Paul says we're in Christ, he means something more than we're in the domain of Jesus as, as king over us. He means quite literally, there's a sense in which we are geographically in Jesus. Because the spirit that lives in us is the spirit that lives in Jesus. And so we are connected to Jesus in his most intimate, innermost places, spiritually. 
which means that our sin really does belong to him. As he died on the cross, he didn't die in abstraction for, for some abstract people. He died for the very people who were in his heart at that moment. All the people who would trust in him. It was my sin on the cross, literally my sin on the cross, that he was paying for, and yours. And, and at the same time, his obedience really is mine, because I was in him as he was obeying God for his whole life. I was there. It was my obedience. It belongs to me, and it belongs to you. That's why Paul can say, there is now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not There will be no condemnation when you get to the judgment, but right now, no guilt, no condemnation, no punishment waiting for you. As soon as you put your trust in Jesus, his death is your death. His great life is your life. No condemnation. We're all sinners. All of us begin our lives in Adam. And to some extent, because we're still in our, in our fleshly bodies, uh, we sometimes are tempted to live there. We all deserve condemnation. And some of us will feel that very keenly uh, from time to time. Perhaps you've buried that feeling deep in the cellar of your soul or perhaps you're carrying around with you the great weight of guilt for things that you've said and done. Can I say to you, please lay them down. They aren't yours to bear anymore. They don't belong to you. If you're not yet a Christian here, let me say, you're very welcome among us. Can I encourage you, please, to just consider your sin and the weight of it. The things you have said and thought and done that you shouldn't have done or the things you should have done that you didn't and then let me ask do you want to face the Lord Jesus on the day that he judges the world with nothing to, to bear before him except all that guilt you will face your own condemnation or will you bring it to the cross and lay it down give it to Jesus let him carry it let him deal with it. Let him give you his life. And let him invite you into eternity. And what about you, Christian, here this afternoon? Will you lay down your burdens? Verse 1 belongs to you. It is God's cast iron promise to you. And the essence of faith is to take God at his word. You have no right to feel guilty as a Christian here. Bizarrely, if you feel guilty, you are sinning because you don't trust God to have dealt with it. Does that make sense? Jesus has dealt with all your sin and all your guilt and all your condemnation. You have no right to it anymore. Leave it alone. Give it to Jesus. God will not ask you to pay for the sins of your past, your present or your future because Jesus has exhausted God's judgment against your sin. So what on earth are you doing carrying around the guilt of it? Jesus has dealt with it. Leave it alone. Which would be enough to go and mull on, wouldn't it? But there's one more thing. Uh, setting up, I think, to next week's talk, I don't want to say too much about this, but I will say a bit because it's in our passage. The Spirit empowers our battle with sin. See, 
Jesus did die for our condemnation. Our punishment is dealt with. But the Spirit, and the Spirit has moved us into the realm of life. And that means that we're no longer in the realm in which sin rules. Do you understand? We often think we are. We often feel powerless. But the truth is we have been moved from death to life, from sin to the rule of the Spirit. The power of sin to govern you is broken. Not completely. That is to say, you won't completely eradicate sin from your life because you're still in your flesh just as I am. But holding the steering wheel is now the Spirit. He is in charge. Now just look again at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. And Paul takes it as read that people who are in Christ live by the Spirit. It's, it's a given to a greater or lesser extent. Paul isn't saying uh, you get to be saved by pulling yourself up by the Spirit's bootstraps and so fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law because the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us by Jesus, by the Spirit. But at the same time, he does mean you can't go on sinning. Go read chapter 6. The whole burden of chapter 6 is it's inappropriate. It's just not right. We're set free. We're no longer in Adam. We're in Christ. And it's not fitting for people who have life, who are reconciled to God, who have peace with God, who are under no condemnation to live as though we were. The Spirit has broken the power of sin over us. Of course we'll still sin. But God is doing an amazing work in us. I don't want to steal Andy's thunder for the next couple of weeks, but do just look on to 8 verse 29. I think this is really helpful. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, that is, uh, planned, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. The likeness. See, Jesus took on the likeness of sinful flesh. He took on our humanity. He became one of us so that in God's plan, verse 29, we might become his likeness. The likeness of the perfect son. That is God's plan for you. The power of sin is broken. The condemnation of sin is done away with. And God's plan for you is that you become more and more and more perfect. In the likeness of Jesus. Of course we'll stumble every day. And every day we come back to the cross and we say, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. I'm sorry for doing the things that I've done. Uh, Forgive me and help me to live a new life. That's repentance. But every day we get up. And we fight again and we say, Holy Spirit, help me to live differently. Have me and do with me as you would. Change me, make me like the Lord Jesus. It is your plan, it is what you are in me to do. Brothers and sisters, we are justified, no longer under condemnation. And so when the devil gets on your shoulder and says, you shouldn't have done that, God has rejected you now. You take him to this verse and say, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I will not listen to that voice anymore. But then we get up and we turn away from our sin. We say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I lay all that on the cross on Jesus. And I live by the newness of life in the Spirit. You've given me strength to live differently. I'm not bound by the sins of my past to do them again and again. 
And the truth be told, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll know this, won't you? That you've begun to change the things you love and the things you hate, the way you live, the things that uh, occupy your attention, your priorities will have begun to change. And we know that's a a stop-start thing. And and if you're the sort of person with a sensitive conscience who doesn't see that in your own life, just ask a close friend and they'll point out to you a dozen ways in which you have become like the Lord Jesus since they've known you. It's a great gift of the church that other people can sometimes see in us the things that we can't see in ourselves. But that, brothers and sisters, is the work of the Spirit. It's not something that we can choose for ourselves. It is something that he does in us. Can I encourage you to cooperate with him and what he's doing in your life? Get on board with God's plan for you to make you like Jesus. It would be great, wouldn't it, to be a church full of people who were just like Jesus? It'd be great. Even if you are burdened by a sin that has dogged you for years, know that the Spirit can beat it. I guess we all have those sorts of sins in our hearts, don't we? Things that we've felt like we will never get rid of. And the truth is, you will never get rid of sin. In some form or another, it will always be there until the Lord Jesus returns. But, by the grace of God, you can win that battle. So pick the battle and get up and fight. You have been united to the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection. God himself has taken the punishment for your sin on the cross, that you might experience eternal life now, resurrection power now, resurrection life now, that soars past death to your perfection in the presence of Christ for all eternity. Lay down your burdens, repent of your sins, leave them with Jesus, turn away from them, and pray. The Spirit in you is there to animate you, to sustain you, to direct you, to enrich your life, to make you more like the Lord Jesus as you fight. So pick an area of sin tonight, something that you have been struggling with, and pray for God's help. Thank him for the Spirit. Thank him there is no condemnation for all the past. Invite the Holy Spirit to lead you. Ask for help to follow his guidance. Read the scriptures that pertain to that sin. Remember the gospel. Ask your close friends to hold you accountable, whatever will be helpful. Take steps in the right direction. And then fight. And know that over time, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit are faithful to bring about in you the purposes of the the Heavenly Father, that you might become like the Lord Jesus. And when you see those little victories, do rejoice in them. They are the work of the Spirit in your heart. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, how we praise you that your plan for us is to be like the Lord Jesus, where the Lord Jesus is. And Father, we confess that the raw materials you're working with aren't great. We are prone to sin and to wander in Adam's realm. Father, praise you for the Lord Jesus who has taken our guilt and and died for it, who has lived the perfect life so that we might own it. And we praise you for the Holy Spirit who confirms that to us, unites us to the Lord Jesus so that we are in him and he in us. And how we praise you for the power of the Spirit working in our hearts, changing us day by day, little by little, that we might be more like the Lord Jesus. Lord, we long for the day when Jesus returns and we become like him in an instant. It will be much easier, but we pray that you would give us strength for the fight today. Help us to be renewed. For those here who are flagging, 
and struggling in the fight. Help us to get alongside them. Help them to remember that your spirit is in them to fight and to fight again. For those who are burdened by guilt, Heavenly Father, help us to lay that guilt down and to remember the, the wonderful truth that we are free in the Lord Jesus. And help us to be truly thankful for all your goodness to us. For your name's sake. Amen. Lots in there. Why don't we just turn to the people beside us and uh, why don't we just think maybe one thing that we've learned. Perhaps one thing that we might want clarification on later. You know, you kind of think, oh, I want to see Ash about that. Why don't you just turn to the person beside you if there's one thing you thought, that really stood out, I need to think that through more. Why don't you just share that with the person beside you? Very quickly, two minutes, go.